Workers' Comp Matters, the podcast dedicated to the laws, the landmark cases, and the people that make up the diverse world of workers' compensation. Here are your hosts, Judd and Alan Pierce. Hello again, this is Alan Pierce and my co-host and son and law partner, Judson Pierce of the Salem, Massachusetts Workers' Compensation Law Firm, Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano, bringing you another edition of Workers' Compensation Matters with our special guest, Joanne Dorishow. Joanne Dorishow is the founder and executive director of the Center for Justice and Democracy at New York Law School. She is featured in the newly released Netflix film documentary, Meltdown, Three Mile Island, where she was lead counsel on the case that reached the United States Supreme Court blocking the restarting of the TMI nuclear reactor after its meltdown in 1979. Today, she will discuss the recently released report written by Emily Gottlieb and edited by Joanne entitled System Letdown, Worker Safety, Harm, and Compensation in the Age of COVID-19, published by the Center for Justice and Democracy. Thank you for being with us today, Joanne. Thank you so much for having me. Joanne, uh, system lockdown covers a wide range of topics related to the following, the government's role in tracking worker illness and deaths, workers' compensation as a system dealing with the effects of this pandemic, worker safety, as well as issues relating to the civil justice system. A lot to cover. So let's find primarily focus on the uh, first three uh, that involve uh, workers' comp. What prompted this report? Well, back in 2020, we we did our first report about worker safety in the age of COVID, and it was called Bad Actors Opening Badly. And we looked at uh, warehouses, meatpacking plants, retail, grocery stores, and found horrendous conditions for the essential frontline workers that were often being forced to work in unsafe conditions in, you know, some cases, disease-ridden super spreader factories and was clearly a huge problem that the government was not doing anything to eradicate, to improve for the workers, uh, OSHA in particular. So a couple of years later, in earlier this year, we decided to look at the situation again and also look at the compensation situation um, since so many of these workers were um, seriously ill, many passed away, and we wanted to see how the workers' comp system in particular, uh, as well as the civil justice system, was working to aid these the workers that had gone through this. And, of course, what we found was very disturbing. One of the many things I enjoyed and also alarmed me about reading this was that you went into the details. You just didn't touch on the statistics and the numbers, but you actually spoke about these people and their lives, who they were. Give us a little bit more about what you found when you when you actually talked to these families. Well, you know, our research involved just a lot of overview of individual anecdotal cases because the the data also, it doesn't really exist. The AFL-CIO put out a report saying the government is not tracking worker illnesses and deaths due to COVID. So the only way to really tell this story is to tell individual stories. Yeah, people who were in these horrible meatpacking, super spreader factories, 
um, who had worked for decades at these places and then got COVID and died. People who were, you know, begging to take sick leave and were, you know, being forced to work, being threatened with dismissal if they took sick leave. And of course, what that was doing was just creating um, these disease-ridden places. So more and more people were, were passing away. These are very tragic stories. You know, when, when you also look back at uh, how at that time the Trump administration was sort of forcing these plants to be open as a result of lobbying from the big companies, Tyson, for example, Foods went in and got uh, Trump to issue an executive order that these meatpacking plants must stay open. Now we have found out, although this isn't specifically in our report, but since we put this report out, the U.S. House of Representatives issued a report which found that these claims from Tyson and the big meat packers that there was going to be a meat shortage in the U.S. if these plants didn't stay, stay open was false. So it was all based on false and profiteering type information. And the workers, unfortunately, were the victims of this. And it's just tragic what happened to many of these lives. Joanne, when you and Emily talked about these folks, you began that particular portion of the report with a very apt quote from uh, our favorite Broadway show, Hamilton the Musical. And that was, who lives, who dies, and who tells the story? Uh, very apt uh, description. So, you know, you've told um, in summary form, maybe eight or nine stories. What is the common theme in those stories that uh, we can learn from? Well, these are very hardworking people, often low wage workers who were had to work. I mean, we, we know now that there are about 50 million essential and frontline workers that work through this early part of the pandemic. These people had to work and they relied on the companies to keep them safe. But in almost every situation, the companies did not enforce or even have any real safety protocols to protect them, whether it was forcing them to work in crowded conditions without any protective equipment. And of course, we're also talking about healthcare workers in those early days that were also, you know, the, the heroes that we talked about that lacked proper equipment, many of them uh, were made sick and often passed away as a result of having to work in hospital situations that were unprepared and didn't have enough equipment. But, you know, in addition, you had these warehouse workers um, that were also forced to work in very crowded, unsafe conditions without safety protocols. Um, it's probably what led uh, the uh, Amazon workers to unionize in the Staten Island Amazon plant fairly recently. It all began with the failure to protect workers during the pandemic. So while that was an unusual situation, what was common is the failure of companies to take appropriate actions to protect their workers, to force them to work while they were sick, to force them to work in unsafe, crowded conditions. You know, these became super spreader situations. And now we're finding situations where we have take-home COVID, where some of these workers took the disease 
to their um, homes and infected family members. And many of those individuals are now dying or, or, or ill, so or have become ill. Joanne, COVID really hit its stride here almost exactly two years ago. It was pretty much late February, early March into the spring of 2020, which just coincidentally happened to be the 50th anniversary of the passage of the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, creating, among other things, OSHA, uh, the administration that would would give the federal government the ability to have uh, uh, oversight over uh, safety in the workplace. Tell us your view as to the response on the federal level through OSHA or through any other source or the lack of response to the pandemic. Uh, Certainly we've had pandemics of various forms and lesser degrees of severity over the years, certainly in the last 50 years since OSHA was created. How did the workers' comp system and worker safety fit into the paradigm of Occupational Safety and Health Act? Well, we know that during the pandemic, OSHA completely abdicated its responsibility to protect workers. I mean, it, it, it not only did nothing, it, it, they cut inspectors, they relieved employers of, of record-keeping requirements to keep track of, of these illnesses and deaths. Um, they basically, they did nothing to protect workers. And what, what happened was, of course, the situation in terms of illnesses and deaths just got worse and worse. And then people did try to turn to the workers' comp system to get some kind of compensation, some kind of financial relief for the situation that the employers and then OSHA put them in. And what we found in doing this report was the workers' comp system let many, many people down. The vast majority of workers, in fact, were not helped by the system. Um, that's as a result of a very early on, well, as as everybody who does workers' comp cases knows, infectious diseases, diseases are not typically often not covered by workers' comp. So states started exploring passing laws to include COVID as a, a, as a, a particular covered on-the-job uh, illness. The insurance industry immediately kicked in, de- in gear to start lobbying against laws like that. Half, you know, a little over half the states did include COVID, ultimately as a covered disease. But then the um, presumption of eligibility issue came up because um, with an illness like this, a disease like this, there's always going to be a causation issue. Can you prove that your illness was caused on the job? So there were bills introduced and some states passed these laws to presume eligibility for people um, who are ill by COVID, sometimes uh, generally for on-the-job illnesses, but sometimes just for very specific types of professions like healthcare or sometimes for essential workers. But even so, even in states where those laws were passed, the companies, the insurers fought fought the claims. And uh, in some states... There was widespread denial, and with some companies, widespread denial of COVID claims with with the companies still insisting that causation was not established, that on-the-job causation was not established. Even, you know, even these horrible meatpacking plants, like in Minnesota, where, you know, so many people got ill and died, all the claims were denied. 
So ultimately, the system failed workers also in that regard. As you know, when a case is denied rightfully, wrongfully, or for any reason, the losses incurred by workers, their medical costs, their wage replacement costs, they don't, they don't evaporate into thin air. It gets shifted elsewhere. An already overburdened and overtaxed private health insurance system, a federally subsidized health insurance or federally funded, totally funded health insurance, either through the Medicare or Medicaid programs, or no health coverage. And same thing with wage. We saw a lot of our clients shifted over to unemployment compensation, even though they weren't laid off, they were ill, uh, but that was in place. And of course, we have social security disability, which is there, but uh, long waiting periods and you know uh, issues surrounding that. So just because these claims are denied don't mean they go away. They just are paid for by society in other other fashions. So, you know, which leads me to the question, did the workers' comp community, the paying community, the employers, the insurers, did they overreact to the costs that they might ultimately have had to bear in terms of these uh, cases? Oh, oh, they 100% overreacted. Um, we, we saw the same pattern with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce trying to push for liability shields generally in states, claiming, oh, there's going to be a wave of lawsuits. And, and in workers' comp, the situation was similar. There's going to be a wave of claims and it's going to bankrupt the insurance industry. Well, of course, you know, even aside from the fact that they were denying these claims, we knew that this was never going to happen because there was going to be a drop-off, a, a significant drop-off of the normal kind of workers' comp claims because of the shutdowns and the layoffs and, and the shift to remote work. And that is exactly what the, what the data shows, is the insurance industry made a windfall off of the pandemic because of all of the, the COVID claims that they paid, uh, to the extent they paid any of them, were more than offset by the drop of, in claims of, of your typical kind of work, workers' comp claim. So... We knew that we knew that was going to be true, that they were fear-mongering without basis. But now we see the data and we see it absolutely was true. Why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, we'll discuss what the future might look like uh, in terms of what we may have learned from the past with our special guest today, Joanne Dorisho. Be right back. Mara's Case is the number one law practice management solution tailor-made for workers' compensation firms. Streamline your practice with Mara's Case's easy-to-use all-in-one platform. You're empowered to breeze through case and document management, workers' compensation forms, e-filing, calendaring, and invoicing. Learn how Mara's Case can increase your firm's efficiency today. Visit Mara'sCase.com. That's M-E-R-U-S-C-A-S-E.com. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. And we're back with another edition of Workers' Comp Matters. Today, our special guest is Joanne Dorisho. Joanne, before the break, we were discussing what types of things we have learned 
What should the government's role be in state and federal in future pandemics? In your view, did it fail? And what can we learn from this going forward? I think I think the government clearly failed workers in this situation. There's far more that OSHA could have done. Just having enforceable, legally enforceable guidelines. Employers were desperate for those. Early on, there were hearings in Congress about the issue of um, should businesses be, be immunized from liability. This was the, the thing that Mitch McConnell was pushing really hard, demanding immunity in exchange for helping state and local governments with money. That, that law never passed, but there were hearings. And the consistent theme from the employers at this hearing was, we just need you to give, give us the standards. We'll comply with them. But this attitude of, you know, do what you want, figure it out on your own, was not helpful to employers. So that was clearly a lesson that was not learned, should have been learned during this pandemic, and hopefully will be learned if this situation ever happens again. We need legally enforceable, clear guidelines that employers can follow that are evidence-based, that are based in science. Joanne, one of the takeaways I have from this report is, and I, I, I guess we both should really credit Emily and or any other staff folks from the Center of Justice and Democracy, but this is very extensively footnoted. There are 169 references to articles surrounding all of these issues. And keep in mind, I don't think any of these articles, articles were being written in the first six months of the first year because none of us knew what we were doing, we were under lockdown. It was, you know, it was really a crazy time. But this is a compendium of where we are right now in terms of resources, of extensive research in real time, in real time of what was happening. So can you let our listeners know how, if they're interested, they might obtain a copy of, and I'll give the title again, System Letdown, Worker Safety, Harm, and Compensation in the Age of COVID-19. This report is easily available on our website, which I think we're going to make available to all the listeners in the notes. But just in terms of the note, the footnotes themselves, this is the way we, we like to do uh, our reports. We, we think it's really important that um, not only to just show readers that what we're saying here is backed up, the research itself is backed up, that it's been fact-checked, but also it does give people the opportunity to learn more because we have, you know, not only uh, publications listed by name, but we have links to everything. So anybody that would like to follow up on any of these issues can go to the report, go right to the footnotes, read through them, click on any of the links that you see, and, and you'll learn quite a bit more than we were able, we were even able to put in, in this, this report. And I know that in addition to perhaps advocacy groups such as, as yours, a lot of this is right from governmental documents, Congressional Research Service, committee hearings, all sorts of uh, really objective data-driven uh, material that, uh, that covers this. It, it, you know, people will be studying this for years in terms of social science, employment policy, safety, workers' comp, to kind of wrap this up. From a workers' compensation benefit delivery standpoint, uh, is there anything that you can point to that this has taught us? Uh, should there be presumptions? 
Do presumptions do any good? Should there be a carve out for infectious diseases or pandemics such as this and perhaps alternative benefit systems available? What, what do you see as the best way to deal with something so widespread and difficult to control? Well, clearly, uh, the insurance commissioners of individual states were not looking at what was going on here. Not that we can necessarily rely on state insurance commissioners to do proper oversight over this industry. But the very first thing that we probably need to do is insist that the insurance commissioners see what the insurance industry did here. Even where where the legislature wanted a presumption of eligibility and they wanted, meaning they wanted these workers to be covered, uh, the insurers were still denying these claims for no reason, for ridiculous reasons. So there was a lot of abuse of the system, I think, that regulators need to know about, that state lawmakers need to, to know about. Whether or not a, a carve-out kind of alternative system for compensating workers is something to con- be considered, I, I don't know. I mean, I there are a lot of pros and cons to doing something like that, and I think they'd have to be clearly studied before we would subject workers to them. But something really didn't work here. Something really went wrong with the insurance system. Uh, there was uh, too much profiteering and greed involved by the big companies, by the insurers. And um, I think it's it's worth taking a serious look at. We, we did a, a report, of course, but I'm talking about having lawmakers really look at this, people in um, positions of authority, take a look at how much abuse happened here. I think um, it's, it's time to do that. What has been the feedback uh, since the report came out, both positive and negative? Who has seen it? Who's responded to it, and might there be some follow-up? Well, the, 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 of course, the the best feedback we get are for, from people who care about workers. The people who are on the other side of this haven't given us any feedback. We don't usually get feedback from them. Um, they try to ignore us as best they can. But there was certainly a lot of positive feedback from from those who care about the workers who were on the front line and. That was a good thing, um, and hopefully it can have an impact moving forward. And I think another thing we have to consider is that the role of the federal government is, by the nature of the workers' comp system, somewhat limited. It can oversee the federal workers' compensation programs under the Department of Labor, Longshore and Harbor Workers, uh, OWCP for federal employees. But we have 50 state jurisdictions many of which have common threads, but all of them are different. And there are really roles exclusively devoted to the states. So these battles, if they, if you term them that, really have to exist in 50 individual jurisdictions as well as the federal government. That complicates broad policy change because it has to filter down to the states. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is our insurance system, unfortunately. Um, federal government can't do, cannot do much at all. So you start with states that may be a little bit more friendly to the employees and see what public officials in those states, whether they care about this, whether they'll take some action. We may not get 50 states to go along with some positive change, but maybe at least some, some states will do that. And that's at least a start. Well, it's been uh, a pleasure having Joanne Dorisho on our show. Thank you so much, Joanne, for joining us and uh, letting our audience know about this incredible report 
The system letdown, worker safety, harm, and compensation in the age of COVID-19 is the uh, report, came out last month. Please, please download it, read it, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's been, a, it's been my pleasure to be here, and thank you for all you do for workers, and um, thank you for focusing on this report. We think we really appreciate it. To our listeners, tune in for the next edition of Workers' Comp Matters and go out yourselves and make today a day that matters. Bye-bye. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.